last uh, November, I did a one-month self-retreat at the Forest Refuge. And it was a wonderful time, actually, to really deeply work for me with the Four Noble Truths, which is what I would like to talk about this evening. But when I finished that retreat and I came out, I saw a poem that I read, and I'd like to read that to you to start this evening. When we feel the tentative passing of our days, life becomes all the more precious. The luminous gold of a sunset, the maple tree in autumn, the gaze of our beloved. There is only one world, the world pressing against you in this minute. There is only one minute in which you are alive, this minute, here and now. The only way to live is by accepting each minute as an unrepeatable miracle. So when I was thinking of coming here to give a talk and wondering what it would be that I could talk about, many of the meditators that I sit with in Perth and many friends were saying, I should just talk about my experiences and what I've been learning and what I've been understanding in the last few months, the last few years. And I realized that what I really have at the moment to sit with you with is a wise heart. I have such deep confidence now and it's been growing over many, many years in the Dharma and a deep confidence and understanding of the Noble Truths. And to actually consider, to really give a talk about this, I realized I needed to express deep gratitude to my teachers that are sitting here, and in Joseph and Steve and Kamala, because for me, they've been a wonderful guide in really working with this, in developing a wise heart. So I'll be talking this evening about these truths of being a human, of living of growing ill, of growing old, and of dying, and all of the joys and sorrows that come with that. So the Buddha really deeply questioned these aspects of life and how they came about and how we could find freedom. And this was the beginning of his, his practice. And he began to teach the Four Noble Truths and he always talked about suffering and then pointed to the liberated qualities of mind, as well as the difficulties. And I think we often forget this. I've seen how I can really get deeply caught in my own difficulties in life and not realize those times of freedom, those times of release and of contentment. So just by being on a retreat, is a wonderful opportunity to connect with these things. As you've noticed, perhaps, coming on retreat, you're slowing down. You're stopping doing many of those habitual things that you do in life, that we get so caught in over and over again. And you're not filling your mind with stimulation, with things that can be distracting. But when this happens, what do you find? Most of you perhaps find that suddenly we're just noticing a whole lot of different things that are coming up in the mind and the body. You're expecting calm and quiet, and this isn't happening. <laughs> You're perhaps noticing that constant changing of the nature of the mind, of your body experiences. One minute you're restless, the next minute you're hot, the next minute you're sleepy, and so it goes on, on and on and on. Thoughts and feelings and emotions. Has anyone not felt this? <laughs> okay. What's interesting is when we stop, we actually start to tune into the nature of our lives. And a lot of it isn't pleasant. We realize that things are often out of our control, unfortunately. And life can't be predicted. Things often are unreliable. 
it seems that everyone I meet has a story or an issue that they're coping with. And some of them are tragedies, some of them are happiness, but we all have stories that are mixed. And every human story has its, its stories of its um, loss and tragedy, of happiness and joy, of pain and fear. It may seem for you that at every turn there's another event or situation that you need to cope with. Sometimes these situations seem unbearable, don't they? And yet you can stay with them, just as you can stay here now. You can stay with these things. So the limits of our acceptance, our courage and patience are constantly being challenged. And I'm always amazed at how resilient people are, how courageous they are. And I'm also amazed at how courageous I am as well. So I think we know that each of us has experienced some levels of suffering, some degrees, and we're all interconnected in this. We can all relate to this in some way. As I listen to the stories of others, it's as if I'm touching my own stories, as if I'm touching my own suffering in some way. And each of us will find our answers to life by developing our capacity to see clearly and directly, and by an intuitive, silent knowing that we call wisdom. So to cultivate wisdom, it's said that we need a supportive environment that's conducive to practice and supportive. And you have it right here. I've never seen such a beautiful environment to sit. It's wonderful. Then you develop an attitude of care and consideration of respect, balanced with patience and perseverance. Then have a willingness to practice and a deep resolve. And that needs to be nurtured. So honor this opportunity to develop your capacity to see clearly and to wake up. Honor the silence that is here. Really honor this. As Joseph said the other evening, life is precious. I can't tell you that enough. Life is precious and there is no time to lose. So I would like to really ask you to bring this idea into your practice deeply. There's no time to lose. Can you hold each moment as precious? We can't get each moment back. So last night I loved it when Kamala talked about how she went to that display and her interest was instantly attracted to the sign that said silent retreat. And it's interesting for me to reflect what I was looking for and when I found a retreat to sit, I was actually looking for someone or some opportunity to learn more about dissatisfaction in my life, to learn more about why I was feeling things were unreliable, things kept changing when I didn't want them to, and I wanted to find a way for freedom. I searched for like about six years and got deeply involved in yoga and meditation through that perspective. I spent almost a year in India and Asia looking for this. And then I went back to Perth and sat with a teacher in Vipassana practice, and there it was. I'd been searching for so long, and then I sat down and I found the answer. I found that the Buddha deeply understood suffering and the end of suffering and the causes, and he deeply understood what is helpful and beneficial in life and what is harmful and unhelpful. He taught what leads to happiness and increases difficulties, what increases difficulties in our life. And this is just what I was looking for. In the first noble truth, we're being asked to open to suffering or to difficulties without judgment and without resistance, just to know that they're part of our life. But with, we open with compassion and kindness. And we're accepting the way things are, just as they are, and acknowledging them, 
despite the fact that we might not want these things to be there, that's just how it is right now. Is this okay? When you do this, it's like we're becoming noble. You're starting to see the truths as noble truths, as universal truths, and as profound. So I read something by Sharon Salzberg, which I found very helpful in this. And she said, while suffering is not all there is in life, it is a thread that could be, can be recognized clearly if we're going to be fully awake, completely present with our experiences and compassionate to ourselves and others. It's a thread that can be recognized clearly if we're going to be awake. So as human beings, of course, dukkha or suffering is part of our lives, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, social. There's a sense within us that life cannot bring lasting satisfaction and that it is unreliable. Life is ever-changing, isn't it? It's not necessarily deep pain from issues such as cancer, but it also can be simple things that we suddenly connect with. So just before I left Australia, I found this article, and I'm not going to read you the whole article, but I'd just like to tell you a little bit about it. It was in one of our local papers, and this woman called it This Misguided Life. And what she's talking about is reflecting back on her youth when she was 16. And she could clearly remember that she fell in love with this boy who was 18. And she could clearly remember him and his car and all the wonderful evenings they spent together and all of the things that they did. And she thought that she had just found the most wonderful person in her life. But unfortunately, he also had another girlfriend that he was going out with on Saturday nights when he said he was meant to be working. So when she found this out, Eventually, their relationship broke up and she was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. And she found that very, very difficult. She really was heartbroken about the whole thing. But what she said was amazing was that he remained in her heart forever. And she used to reflect on this and notice that she would sometimes recall this experience and this person and really connect with this person again and again and again. So as she grew older, she had relationships, she was married, she had a son, she was very happy. But over the years, when she'd get together with friends, they would talk about their life when they were young, and she would talk about this love that she had and wonder what happened, and she'd find out about what he was doing. Then it just occurred later on that she found out that he was working close by in a similar firm to her. And then, as situations changed, it occurred that she was going to a meeting and he was there. She knew that he was going to be there. So she got really well-dressed and was really quite you know, happy to be meeting this person again. She was really looking forward to it. What happened was, when he walked into the room, she would never have known it was him until someone actually introduced her to him. And he had no recall of her at all. <laughs> so this is quite devastating for her. She said she explained who she was and that they'd been out together. And he looked very carefully at her and said, oh, goodness, is that right? <laughs> and she realized she hadn't aged very well. <laughs> what happened then was she realized also he hadn't aged very well. <laughs> And it was so funny. What she says, I was facing the source of my most treasured memories and dreams, staring into eyes that lacked sparkle and searching for the semblance of the God I had carried in my heart all these years. I realized he no longer existed and probably never had. <laughs> Without another word, he headed towards his seat in the meeting. I took mine for what, had already, what it was already going to become and had become the most liberating of meetings in my life. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes we take all of this so seriously. <laughs> but in fact, we can, find, we can hold it with lightness, can't we? 
we do these things, we hold on to these things, and then we suffer in some funny way because of it. We're not really present. Often things have little substance or permanency. Though we think they are permanent, they don't really have that permanency. You know, I found this was such a relief when I heard it. I thought this is wonderful. I really realized that there was nothing wrong with me. I'd always thought there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't always happy, that I wasn't always deeply connected with life and everything was perfect. And it was such a relief to realize there's nothing wrong with my life and me. Just because I experienced distress, unsatisfactoriness, whatever. So a simple way for you to connect with dukkha right now is just to notice how you're feeling in your body. Are you feeling comfortable? Are you feeling uncomfortable? If I said to you right now, get as comfortable as you can possibly get, Okay, so you just got completely comfortable. Settle back, everything's fine. What's going to happen? How long is it going to last? <laughs> Five minutes? <laughs> then what happens? You get uncomfortable. And then you move. And you get completely comfortable again. And then what happens? And on it goes. Over and over again, doesn't it? The same thing happens in our mind. If the mind is peaceful, we can rest. But unfortunately, it keeps moving. It keeps thinking. It keeps planning. It keeps remembering. It keeps fantasizing. And we can't be at peace. It's always looking for something to bring us comfort, happiness, satisfaction, or peace, but never quite finding it. <laughs> That's the problem. So we want things to stay the same. We want things to bring us lasting peace, to satisfy our desires, but we keep looking in the wrong places. Now, we've got to know this and understand it, and perhaps you're really connecting with this in some way. But it would have been difficult if the Buddha left it there. So that's it. <laughs> What's wonderful is that he didn't stop with those first two truths. But he actually saw that there was an end to suffering, and he taught that, and he taught the path that we can follow, known as the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. And he taught that we can experience freedom through following this path of right understanding, of right thought or intention, of speech, action, livelihood, of using right energy, right mindfulness and concentration. This is the path. So when we use the word right, it's a funny word perhaps for you. Another way of thinking about it is wise. Causing no harm, cutting through delusion, and finding balance, as we've been talking about for several days now. Through these factors, we're really developing wisdom, and then wisdom deepens our understanding and the way we live. If we see and understand what we're doing by asking questions like, what is happening right now? We then start to ask, how do I want to live my life? Is it with love and compassion and non-harming? Or is it with anger and harm? So then we use skillful means to develop our path of practice, our path of living. Pema Chodron says, This path has one very distinct characteristic. It is not prefabricated. I kind of like that word, prefabricated. It does not already exist. It is a moment-to-moment -moment evolution of our experience, a moment-to-moment -moment evolution of phenomena, and a moment-to-moment -moment evolution of our thoughts and emotions. So if you ask how to live with all of these things, the answer is simple. Make the Dharma personal. Explore it wholeheartedly and relax. That's amazing, isn't it? Make the Dharma personal. 
explore it wholeheartedly and relax. So my gratitude for being here at the moment is that a year ago I was due to be here and in this last year I think I have been exploring this path in the last two years perhaps wholeheartedly, deeply connected with it. When I was due to come here last year at this time, it was only three weeks after my husband had died from a very aggressive brain tumour that he had, we actually lived with, for just about 10 months. So it was a very difficult time, and yet it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful opportunity to practice. It was a wonderful opportunity to live the Dharma. And really, when I reflect back on it now, I have such a sense of joy and compassion that was really open at this time. It was very powerful. I think also what was wonderful is that my husband Ray had actually been practicing probably 30 years. And it really helped me to understand that this practice can go with us right to the moment that we're no longer aware. We can work with it deeply, we can connect with it deeply, and out of this grows a depth of compassion and love that you just can't imagine. But it can be there in such a profound way. So when you're caring for somebody, and I'm sure many of you have, who've had an illness, had cancer, had some sort of disease, or even perhaps just growing much older and frailer, it really requires dedication, doesn't it? Really deep dedication. And also it shows us this path is so profound. In the same way, if any of you have come to terms with grief and loss, you will know how totally encompassing, all-encompassing it can be. So this path is profound. When the Buddha first taught the first sermon to the five ascetics that he was working, he found that he had known for some time, just a few months after his enlightenment, he was very clear when he said, I have found the middle way. Practically the whole teachings of the Buddha have been devoted for 45 years, the rest of his life, to dealing with the path and teaching it in one way or another. He pointed out the path that we can use as skillful means to explore and understand. And the wonderful thing was that he explained it in so many different ways and with so many different words to so many different people according to their stage of the, their development and their capacity to understand and follow him. So we all hear it differently and we all experience it differently, but the core of it is the value that we put into practice. And he was quoted as saying, amongst all the conventional teachings I give, the highest of all is the Eightfold Path. That's pretty clear. These categories on this path are not linear. They don't just go step by step by step by step. But they're actually really developing continuously, they're strengthening, they're deepening continuously, and they're all linked together, and one influences the other profoundly. But the issue is that it's not a philosophy. It's not something we read and then just talk about. It's actually what we have to practice. And it has to do with us, with our lives, and our responsibilities, because we have bodies because we have the ability to speak and act and think. So these aim at promoting and perfecting the three qualities of wisdom or panya, of ethical conduct or sila, and of mental discipline or samadhi. And over the last few days, you've been hearing about these. You've been hearing about sila, samadhi. You've been hearing about wisdom a right understanding and right intention. So what we're doing deeply here is connecting with these things, really building awareness so we understand our life as it evolves moment to moment. We're looking at being aware of what's happening, 
and then seeing deeply through the field of investigation. What is really there? What do I know? We're bringing right effort to deepen our practice, to deepen our awareness, to understand, so that the right effort has balance. The question is, where, what is it that I am aware of right now? We're noticing the way we live, the state of mind, has actions that bring results. Actions motivated by love and generosity bring happiness and peace. So we begin to live more consciously. It just becomes natural. It's as if we couldn't imagine doing things that are harmful or unwholesome as we develop these wholesome states of mind. An example, perhaps, of this is when I was actually experiencing grief. I was really connecting with a level of suffering, even when my husband was alive, but also afterwards. And I began to see and deeply know what grief was. I began to see when it was present. I began to see where it came from. I began to see when it would fade. And I started to notice that if I didn't react, if I didn't act on what was happening, but I stayed balanced and open and aware and began to understand what it was about, then the thoughts and feelings would dissolve. But if I reacted and was caught in these memories, these fears about the future, how am I going to live, what am I going to do, oh my goodness, how am I going to cope, then the day would be filled with tears and sadness and it would go on and on and on. The question I would always come back to is, is this really helpful right now? What is it that is helpful right now? I was exploring what was creating happiness and what was creating suffering in the moment and what follows in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. I started to see this is the cause of suffering and this is the cause of happiness seeing the immediate effects on the mind. You can see how this builds over time. I could notice spacing out results in this, staying mindful results in this, being afraid results in this. So I began to understand how intentions have impact on life, how a thought can have immense influence on one's behavior. When we develop a mind that is calm and precise, we have a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of the way things are, of the Four Noble Truths, and we can start to see the path unfolding. It is all interrelated. Developing one aspect of the path helps to strengthen the other factors. And from this view of the path, we may see that there's a way of life to be followed, practiced, and developed by each of us continually. We need to continue to nurture the understanding we gain to make sure that the wisdom keeps doing its job and you keep growing in wisdom. Continuing to practice is about being mindful with whatever you do. So just reflecting for yourself at the moment. You've probably each got your own understanding of dukkha. You're all now on this path of practice, of purification of body and mind. What do you experience in your body as far as dukkha? Perhaps you're noticing that it's vulnerable. You might be noticing your body's aging. (laughs) You might be noticing it doesn't feel as healthy as it sometimes does or it's painful. You may experience a sense of just general unease with life. It may be a sense of unsatisfactoriness with this unreliability in the nature of everything. Or it may be a sense of the heart resisting life as it is. Just reflect what it is for you at this moment. The question is, 
Can we open to what life teaches us and investigate what life is, suffering, is offering us? If we want to be free from dukkha, we have no option but to understand and accept it as best we can right now. When I was going through grief, one of the um, short phrases I used to hold with me quite often was something that Larry Rosenberg said. True insight comes from seeing things as they really are, not as we want them to be. Coming to this acceptance is the work of grief or mourning. And this is what I'd like to speak about now. So you will have all, I'm sure, experience grief in some way. Grief is just a universal experience as a response to loss. And you all will have lost something or someone. And you will have experienced those responses to loss. Jack Cornfield says that from a universal perspective, all things that are born will die. Death comes to our best friends and family members, sometimes even to young children. When we grieve, we actually join in the universal grieving of all those who have died. This is not a tragedy. This is wisdom. From the universal perspective, life is all the more precious and beautiful because it is so fleeting. So my grief started before my husband actually passed away, but it continued and it was really a powerful and all-encompassing thing. For each of us, when we go through grief, it is a total experience that we actually live, don't we? It's very hard to do anything but be overwhelmed initially by all of the experiences that are coming up. It may be the ever-changing highs and lows, and people often talk about being on a roller coaster. One minute you're so happy, and the next minute you're just sobbing. One minute you feel really, really such an experience of love, and the next minute devastation. It's a total response. It takes an enormous amount of energy to stay with it. And there's the physicality, the actual body experience of feeling that missing energy, that connection, so there might be restlessness and crying as well, not sleeping. There's the emotional experiences of loneliness, of happiness and then sadness, of despair. And there's lots of thoughts, mental experiences, mental images of memories, perhaps confusion, perhaps fear. So after about four months, what I wanted to do was go to the forest refuge. There was no other place I could possibly think I wanted to be. I wanted to explore this, to honor it, to be with it, to see and find a way through it, and to be open to that possibility. And it was really funny, when I said I was going there, people were really worried about it. They were really afraid, and they really saw that it was actually so courageous to leave the security of home, the companionship of family and friends, the safety of being there, and to leave that and come completely away to the other side of the world and actually sit with all the pain. They found that very profound. And I must say that a couple of times I had a few doubts. <laughs> Was this the right thing? <laughs> but I really believed and my faith in the Dharma was so strong that I couldn't imagine what else I could possibly do but come to that place of refuge and be with people that I knew would honor that and that would care for me and I had such trust in this. I really believe that in stopping and opening to the body and the senses, to the mind in every moment, that I could, and that was difficult, I was really deeply connecting with a newness in life. But as you all know, this is really hard because there's such a pull of the heart into the past. There's such a deep connection that we don't want to let go of that we want to keep holding on to because that is our reality at this time. So I worked with a sutta that was very helpful. This is um, 
one of the suttas or just a section of it that I found so profound. Let not a person revisit the past or on the future build his hopes. The past has been left behind. The future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let him or her see each present arisen state. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. And this is what I tried to do, was really see that the past was gone. I really didn't have a future. I really did need to be with the present. This is true for all of us, but this is hard. This is hard to do. And what comes up, of course, when we stop and look at this, what comes up straight away is fear. Now, it was wonderful last night to hear Kamala talk about healthy aspects of fear that really move us onto the path, that keep us moving on the path. This is profound because we often see fear as being terrible. Fear, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. But in fact, fear is a positive energy as well. We can use it in a very profound way. It is so powerful. Under normal circumstances, fear is not a problem. Fear can be healthy because it protects us from danger. When I was caring for my husband, a lot of the fear was good. It made me ask for help. It made me actually really look at what was unhelpful, what was unhealthy. It made me make changes. It made me really see things. So if people are afraid, if they do it, they're not living in a healthy way, fear can really propel them to make behavior changes. It can be helpful. But for most of us, a lot of the time, we expend a huge portion of energy on dealing with anxiety and fear. It may be for you what's happening presently in the economic climate, we're always aware of fears of war, fears of conflict, fears of safety, being separated from people that we love, etc. Fear of failure, fear of rejection or loss, losing a job. Our fears go to our very core. And often when we're experiencing fear, have you noticed there's a sense of closing down? Even a sense of freezing. It's almost like... We can't do anything. We just freeze. We resist everything. But I've actually learned to know it almost as a friend. It's familiar, and now it feels comfortable. Usually we experience it as a sense of being unsettled, not being secure, uncertainty, instability. And this makes us anxious. Unfortunately, we usually apply the wrong antidote to it. We work with it in the wrong way. The Buddha said we often get caught by fears of not getting what we want to have, being separated from what we have, or getting what we don't want. And I think this is where I was experiencing it. I had all of those things happening. Most of all, we have an aversion to fear because it feels uncomfortable. It feels emotionally and physically uncomfortable, so we don't want to look at it. We try to suppress it, but in extreme times, it gets harder to do, doesn't it? Somehow, at some point, we have to look. We have to see it. And what we can do is just take a different approach. So we can change it to see that fear is an opportunity, actually, as well as an obstacle. It can be an opportunity. We can even encourage the chance to be with fear and to bring it to the surface, into the open. What I found is when it was sitting underneath everything, it was influencing every experience I was having. But if I was able to say, oh, here's fear, and see it, it really helped. We could welcome the fear sometimes as an opportunity that actually brings us to fearlessness, What's important in this is the attitude that we take. So if you're opening to any strong emotions, such as fear, ask yourself, what is the attitude 
I have right now. See if you can relax a little, open and allow it to be present. Just being free of fear is very powerful. When we're fearless in the face of difficulties in life, it means that we don't need to rush past feelings of discomfort of it all, and we actually don't lose touch with our basic resourcefulness, our basic courage to be there. This sense of fearlessness is balanced with fear, and it gives us confidence in our awareness and understanding. We can trust our intelligence, we can trust our wisdom, and we can trust our heart. That's why I was saying, I feel now I have a wise heart. I know I can rely on this heart. I know I can rely on myself. Often to open to it, all we can do is just offer kindness and compassion and use the words, this is how it is right now. Can I just be with it as it is? We don't need to do anything else often if it's so big, but just accept this is how it is right now. Can I just be with that? So as we've heard in the instructions before, it's about recognizing what's present, recognizing that fear, and just, if we can, accepting it's there, opening to it, perhaps investigating it a little. What we realize when we look at something like fear is that our practice actually isn't just about being calm and comfortable and secure. Although we do need a sense of security to actually look at these things and have a willingness to stay present and truly experience them. But the key to understanding fear and being with it is to know when it's unhealthy and how to transform it into something that we can work with that can be helpful. Fear is powerful, but it can be an incentive to work with, to be honest with ourselves, to be present and to change. We can find that we can build an inner refuge to deal with this by gradually training the mind. And once we've done this, that we can become fearless because there is, we know deeply there is no longer anything that can harm us. I discovered often that fear was only as big as my attachment and my holding, only as big as my resistance to change. And if I could stay present with compassion and kindness and care for myself and others, then I wasn't coming from such a tight sense of I and mine. And then the fear would often subside. And this brings a natural confidence and faith in the laws of nature and in the Dharma, in the practice. And there's an opening to whatever is to be and the profound truth of this is the way things are right now. So considering also grief, We've talked about grief as a response to loss, the experiences we may have from grief. What is it that we learn? What is it that we understand? The Buddha said that we have all cried more tears than would fill the world's oceans with grief. It is beyond imagination over lifetimes. We suffer and we grieve yet it holds potential for understanding and for wisdom. So loss is always a part of life. Loss of a toy, loss of a pet, loss of a loved one, a parent in divorce, whatever it is. And it defines our joy as well. If we didn't have these things, we wouldn't have the joys and the happiness. If we didn't have attachments, if we didn't have children or pets or loved ones, we wouldn't experience those deep, highs and those wonderful lows that life brings. 
Grief has causes and conditions and we need to open to the process, to the ups and the downs. And there really is nowhere to hide. It's so all-encompassing. It uses energy and attention to be present and it demands, as I said, compassion and kindness and care. Many people get really stuck in grief. They instantly go into busyness, they take on many projects, they just avoid looking at it. If we honour it, it can be profound. It takes faith and trust to show up moment to moment. But what I've found is to move to the end of grief and to heal, we come back to living in the present, in the now. There is no future, as I mentioned before, and there is no past to cling to. We, this requires letting go of memories of the past that we know as thoughts. We can actually see that the memories are not real and they're not permanent. And we can develop an acceptance of this law of impermanence, the changing rhythms of life, the ebbs and the flows. It's the truth of aging. It's the truth of illness as the cycles of nature, the law of nature. And to touch this, wisdom flows. So wisdom understands that nothing can provide lasting satisfaction and that every, anything we experience doesn't really belong to some fixed sense or this fixed idea of I and mine and me, not our thoughts or feelings or body, not even awareness itself. When we see this, we no longer hold tight. We no longer cling or grasp. And in this moment of letting go, we are free. When something has naturally ceased, we experience freedom. Each moment becomes a flow of changing experiences and a new way to understand reality. John Kabat-Zinn says, I find it useful to meet each moment freshly as a new beginning, to keep returning to awareness of now over and over again, and let a gentle but per firm perseverance stemming from the discipline of practice keep me at least somewhat open to what is arising and learn whatever it might be possible to learn as the nature of the situation is revealed by being present. When you come right down to it, what else is there to do? If we are not deeply grounded in our being, if we are not deeply grounded in being awake, we're actually missing out on this gift of our very lives and the opportunity to be of any real benefit to others. It does help if we remind ourselves to ask our hearts from time to time what is most important right now, in this moment, and listen very carefully to the response. So from this I would suggest taking for yourselves the opportunity to observe for yourself the benefits of this practice throughout each day, paying attention as best you can to the moments as they present themselves, staying connected with your heart. When the time is ripe, you will deeply understand the difference between what you have read or heard about insight and wisdom and what you actually experience for yourself. Direct experience of reality will have a profound impact on your practice, on the way you perceive the world, and on the way you lead your life or you live your life. The Buddha advised each person to see for themselves, not to believe what is taught. For me, this was so liberating. For me to learn from my direct experience 
we need to continue to nurture the understanding we gain to make sure the wisdom keeps doing its job and we keep growing in wisdom. Continuing to practice is about being present, about showing up, being awake to what you're doing. As one great Tibetan sage said in encapsulating the path of mind training to wisdom, and it's a daily reminder. So just close your eyes for a minute and think of this. May my mind turn towards the Dharma. May my Dharma practice become the path. May the path clarify confusion. And may confusion dawn as wisdom. May the path clarify confusion and may confusion dawn as wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.